Welcome to Cancer Conference Update. This is medical oncologist Dr. Neil Love. In this, our annual review of the key papers presented at the American Society of Hematology meeting, we visit with a number of investigators, and first up is Dr. Sagar Loniel to discuss key ASH datasets in multiple myeloma, beginning with a fascinating paper looking at the imid lenalidomide with dexamethasone in smoldering disease. Abstract 991 was a randomized phase three trial from the Spanish myeloma group looking at a cohort of patients that I think many of us are very, very interested in. And in fact, in the U.S., we're now doing a trial in this cohort of patients as well. And these are patients with what is considered to be high-risk smoldering or asymptomatic myeloma. Now, what defines high-risk in this population is different from our meaning of high risk in the context of patients with symptomatic myeloma. This is not genetics-based. This is really based on the likelihood of progression from asymptomatic to symptomatic myeloma. And there is a group of patients that represent about a third of smoldering patients that have the criteria fitting for this high risk. And the way we define that is the magnitude of the M protein, the number of plasma cells in the marrow, and in the U.S., we use the free light chain ratio. So abnormal free light chain ratio predicts for high risk of progression to symptomatic myeloma. What the Spanish group did was take a group similar to what I just defined and randomize them to either Lendex or observation with the idea that we know these high-risk patients are likely to convert to symptomatic myeloma with a median time of about 18 months. So if you can interfere with that natural history, it might have a major impact on outcomes. So they presented data previously where they showed the response rate was obviously higher for treatment versus no treatment. The progression-free survival was higher for the group that got lenalidomide. Not a surprise because you treat patients versus not treating patients, they're going to stay in remission longer. What was really quite striking about this abstract was a hint towards improvement in overall survival. And that has never been shown in a smoldering myeloma patient population with early treatment. So I think that really represents one of the really important conclusions from this study. And the U.S. study, what exactly is that looking at, and when do you think we'll see data from that? So the U.S. study is an ECOG trial that I'm actually the PI on, and the way we define the U.S. study is it's single-agent LEN versus observation. And the reason we did that was we did not want the DEX to sort of cloud the picture in terms of toxicity. We really wanted to know if lenalidomide itself could change the natural history of high-risk smoldering myeloma. We've now treated 35 patients in the early phase portion of that, and by CTEP's requirements, we've had to stop for six months, look at the safety data, and then if that's okay, we'll move on to the randomized portion. So we're a ways away from having U.S. data. But I think it's important to really say that this Spanish trial was a relatively small trial. It was about 150 patients, and it is not the final word on this answer. I think it's certainly very provocative that it suggests that there is an improvement in survival for the group that got early therapy, but there were certainly toxicities associated with it, and there were a number of patients who were randomized to observation and a month later developed renal failure or developed a fracture. And given the rapidity of some of those progressions, one would wonder whether they actually had myeloma and just got put on the observation arm in the first place. And what do you think the clinical implications, if any, are right now outside a trial setting, assuming you could access lenalidomide for patients like these? For me, I think what it really does is highlight that not all smoldering patients are the same. 
and that this process, this exercise of risk stratifying them is something that should be done for every patient who has plasma cells but maybe doesn't need treatment. And what that means in the U.S. basically is you do the free light chain ratio, which not everybody routinely does, and you MRI the spine. And I think that's critically important because a lot of patients are not always getting MRIs of the spine, and you can find bone disease sometimes in a spine MRI that's missed on a routine x-ray. And it tells you that that patient probably doesn't have smoldering myeloma, that they need to be treated. What about treating people with negative MRIs? I think at this point, if they're still asymptomatic, I think the wealth of data says don't treat them early. But I think it also brings up the concept that diagnosing somebody as smoldering is not a snapshot. It's not a one-time diagnosis. And that you look at the protein, you look at the clinical criteria over the course of time, and that it's that slope on the curve. The hemoglobin is 12, now it's 11, now it's 11, 10.5. That's probably more important than that single snapshot in time. How about the presentation by Dr. Palumbo looking at the phase three study in older patients? So I think the treatments for older patients are really very interesting because for years we'd not made significant progress for older patients because they couldn't have a transplant. And what we've now seen in Europe is three sets of studies. One set of studies that looked at MPT and showed that it was better than MP. One set of studies that has looked at VMP, either weekly or twice weekly dosing, and have shown that it's better than MP. And this is the third set of data looking at LEN in combination with MP to try and figure out whether MPR, lenalidomide with melphalan and prednisone, is really better than melphalan and prednisone. And what I think Antonio is showing us in this most recent update of a three-arm trial that looked at either MP, MPR with no maintenance, or MPR with lenalidomide maintenance, that's really the three arms in this trial, what I think he nicely demonstrated was that LEN maintenance does have a major impact in terms of progression-free survival for the older patient population. Whether I can comfortably conclude that MPR is better than MP without maintenance, I think is less clear. Does it change your view of using, I mean, I guess you could call it LEN maintenance, but it's really continuation of an older patient's in general, does it change your view of sort of the strategy in older patients? Absolutely. And I think the concept of maintenance therapy, just as we're struggling with it in younger patients, I think this gives us more data to struggle with in older patients. And the reason I think that it's important to talk about maintenance in an older patient population is that in truly older patients, over the age of 75, over the age of 80, you may not get a second shot to treat those patients. And so maintaining them in remission may be more important than stopping therapy, letting them relapse, and then perhaps never getting to fight the battle again. And I think this very nicely shows that you can improve progression-free survival with LEN maintenance. It does not answer the survival question, which I think is important. We just don't have enough follow-up to really answer that question in this trial yet. Can you just look at this instead of talking about older patients and just talk about patients who are non-transplant candidates in terms of, again, a long-term strategy? You know, we had that workshop last year, and Antonio was talking about the idea of figuring out a way to keep older patients on therapy. Do you think this data substantiates that, and do you buy into it? Yeah, I think it does. I think it does. And you have to remember, there are still two pretty dichotomous camps in the myeloma community. There's the camp that says... PFS at all costs is really important, that you maintain duration of remission 
and that you hit patients relatively hard early on to try and get depth of remission, and then you maintain that depth of remission. And that's Antonio's approach. There are others who say it's an incurable disease, you want to sort of limp along and do the minimum that you can to really do no harm. I think personally that myeloma is a different disease in terms of treatment now than it was 15 years ago. And the idea of limping along doesn't make a lot of sense to me. We know that plasma cells mutate over time and that they develop resistance to certain drugs. And if that's the case, why not use the drugs you have early on to try and enhance the depth of response and then maintain that response as long as you can, as long as it can be done safely? And in older patients, that's really the big go, no-go signal in my mind. If you're doing things that are causing excessive toxicity in an older patient, that's not worth it. But if you can induce a good remission and then maintain that remission with minimal side effects and toxicities, I think that has a lot of value, especially in an older patient. What about abstract 476 by Dr. San Miguel? So what I think that this abstract really does is give us the longest follow-up we've had on a large international randomized phase three trial and shows us, again, what I mentioned earlier, which is that the concept of what you do in the beginning to an older patient can impact their entire natural history. And this was a five-year follow-up by Dr. San Miguel on the VISTA trial, which, as you recall, was VMP compared to MP. And we've seen early looks, which were presented probably four or five years ago. We've seen updates of this that were published in Blood by Dr. Mateo, showing that with a median follow-up of three years, the VMP arm continues to live longer than the group randomized to MP. And what Dr. San Miguel presented at ASH this year was five-year follow-up, so 60 months median follow-up, and shows that the curves have not overlapped, that the VMP initial arm continues to have improved survival compared to melphalan and prednisone. And I think, in my mind, that really speaks powerfully about the importance of that initial choice of therapy. And I would argue that this same kind of power is probably present in younger patients, but because they live so much longer, it's harder to see it as you can with this trial. But I am a big believer that choosing the right regimen early on is really critically important to changing the natural history of patients. So we're going to talk about some other papers and older patients, but I just have to ask you at this point, right now, outside of a trial setting, how do you approach the 65, 75, 85-year-old patient? I think that in patients who have high-risk disease at diagnosis or who can come to the office to see me, VMP is probably where I tend to go because I know I can get quick responses. I know that the responses can be durable. And for high-risk patients, I think the use of bortezomib is really very important. If they can't come to see me or they live far away, then a lenalidomide-based approach is probably what I'm going to do for those patients with or without melphalan, probably without melphalan, because I think lenalidomide is more effective when given without melphalan. Let's talk about another paper by Dr. Palumbo, 996, looking at second cancers in patients treated with lenalidomide. So I think that what the second malignancy question really raises is really relevant to the whole concept of maintenance therapy. And so we've seen this in the younger post-transplant patients. Dr. Palumbo is presenting on some older patients who got lenalidomide maintenance as well. And I think he showed a couple of important points. The first is that if you look at all the patients who got len maintenance versus those who got placebo, the risk of a second malignancy is higher than the group that got placebo. I think that's pretty clear across all the trials. 
Is it appreciably higher? Is it significantly higher? I think that varies from trial to trial. In fact, the French trial giving Len versus placebo seemed to have the highest incidence of second malignancies. The U.S. trial using Len versus observation post-transplant seemed to have a lower risk of second malignancies. But across the board, it does appear to be slightly higher. If you look at the risk, in my mind, it's about one and a half to two and a half percent for the observation group. It's probably around three and a half percent for the lenalidomide maintenance group. How are you approaching long-term maintenance in the non-transplant, non-protocol setting? In my mind, lenalidomide is a drug that's used until progression or toxicity. So when you start somebody on lenalidomide, if that's what I choose to use for an older patient as their induction, I keep the len going as long as they're on treatment. What about the non-transplant patient who's going to get RVD or RVD light? Well, again, I think in that patient population, if they are a standard risk patient, I would continue lenalidomide unless there's toxicity or progression. And in the high-risk patient? The high-risk, I'm not sure that any single drug is enough. And so in patients who have 17P or 1416 or something along those lines, our approach at Emory for the last two years has been to treat high risk with a three-drug maintenance approach, using VRD light, essentially, on those patients. And so I think if they're older or younger, if they have high-risk disease, I don't think either bortezomib or lenalidomide alone is sufficient therapy. And how long have you been able to continue RVD light? In our experience, and actually one of our faculty members is actually putting our data together, looking at about 100 patients who got this, we have maintained several patients at two years. And so I think it can be done using weekly bortezomib sub-Q has really helped us to be able to do that. How about the paper by Dr. Nuvetsky looking at the upfront study again? What I think Ruben's study really shows nicely is it raises a question in a clearly older, sicker patient population. He asked the question, do you need to have melphalan in the mix? And what he did was compare patients who got bortezomib dex, or VD, versus patients who got VTD, bortezomib with thaldex, versus patients who got VMP. And so, in my mind, this is really asking the melphalan or no melphalan question for an older patient population. And what he nicely shows is that in this patient population, there's no difference in progression-free survival, no difference in overall survival, and response rates are similar between the three groups. And what I think Ruben's data shows is that, in my mind, there are three sets of patients. We've said transplant versus non-transplant. I think there are really three groups of patients. The first group is a group of patients that are eligible for transplant, are fit, and are in good shape, younger than 65. This side, that side of the pond, everybody agrees they should have a transplant. The second set is a group of patients who are between the ages of 65 and 75. In Europe, they don't get a transplant. In the U.S., they probably do, and they're a younger, more fit patient population than the third group. And the third group is the over age 75 or poor performance status, clearly not a transplant patient. And that's the group that Ruben really studies in his trial. It's not the average 66-year-old who looks like they're in good shape, walks a mile, plays tennis, does all that stuff. It's a 75 to 85-year-old patient who can't walk a mile, who has significant comorbidities. That's who Ruben's really studying. And in my mind, he shows that I don't think that you necessarily need melphalan for that patient population. What are you likely to utilize outside of protocol in a patient like that? 
So I think in this kind of a patient population, again, my thoughts are unless they're able to come in quickly or they have high co-pays for medicines, Lendex for a really sick patient population who has standard risk disease is probably what I'm going to do just to try and minimize side effects. Let's talk a little bit about new agents, beginning with carfilzomib, and maybe we can start out with Dr. Jakubiak's follow-up to last year's ASH presentation, looking at so-called CRD. What I think Andres really showed nicely in this trial, which was essentially substituting the V and VRD, which is bortezomib, for C, or carfilzomib, which is a second-generation proteasome inhibitor, has a very different safety profile than bortezomib. Ravi Vij, at the same meeting, presented data on carfilzomib in a bortezomib-naive patient population and showed a response rate of over 50% with, again, no significant peripheral neuropathy. This is with long follow-up now, the 004 clinical trial, and I think clearly established the activity of carfilzomib in a group of patients who are bortezomib-naive. And so what Andres was trying to do was to say, well, if it's clearly active and it has a different safety profile, can I substitute it for bortezomib in a three-drug combination? And Andres has previously reported a very high overall response rate. Over 95% is what he reported before. In this update, he shows that over 100% of patients will achieve, everybody will achieve at least a partial response. And in fact, about 79% of patients who get to eight cycles will achieve a CR or a near CR. And what I think is most striking about that is the concept that very few, if any, patients had to have dose modification or reduction of carfilzomib because of toxicity. And it supports that concept that you brought up earlier from Dr. Palumbo, that maintaining duration of therapy with dose intensity is important. And he shows that he doesn't have to reduce the proteasome inhibitor by giving carfilzomib in combination with lenalidomide and dexamethasone. What about tolerability of carfilzomib, not just the comparison in terms of neuropathy, but other issues? I've heard about dyspnea. I've heard about hyperglycemia. So I think that carfilzomib in general is a very well-tolerated drug. I think that the dyspnea question may in some way relate to perhaps an issue with patients who have underlying cardiac disease. There may be something associated with that. We didn't see a very strong cardiac signal, and certainly nobody had drops in their EF associated with carfilzomib administration, but I wonder whether it has something to do with that. The hyperglycemia, I'll tell you, I've not seen as an issue. I know that a little bit of DEX is used as a premedication for most patients to prevent this infusion-type reaction with a high creatinine and fevers and things like that, but I didn't really see a significant issue with hyperglycemia in my patient population. Any other side effect issues, and do you think that the neuropathy difference is for real? Yeah, we've treated probably over 25 or 30 patients with carfilzomib. It's a real difference. I've had patients who developed significant neuropathy from bortezomib that got better over time but progressed and were retreated with carfilzomib and have been on for a long period of time without any evidence of neuropathy. So I think it's a real issue. What I think is really unknown about carfilzomib is, is the 2027 dose that Dr. Vidge reported on in this meeting, is that the right dose? Because in Andres's trial, he goes up to 2036 milligrams per meter squared. And in fact, there are trials looking at 40 and 45 milligrams per meter squared as well. So I think one of the questions is, can you go higher? And if you go higher, do you overcome resistance at lower doses? And the preliminary data says yes. Where do you see things heading in terms of carfilzomib? I don't believe there's a CRD versus VRD trial, is there? 
There is not CRD versus VRD as yet. There is CRD versus RD, which is the phase three trial that I think is about to be completed if it's not already completed for FDA approval. I think that carfilzomib is clearly a very active drug. And in my mind, you know, the only changes other than safety are really the dosing schedule. Bortezomib, we know, 1, 4, 8, and 11, twice a week, two weeks on, one week off. Carfilzomib is 1, 2, 8, 9, 15, 16 every 28 days. So it's a slightly different schedule. It's still twice a week, but it's two consecutive days. There are patients who say that's better. There are patients who say that's less convenient. I think there are all sorts of issues about that. But in my mind, it clearly is a very active drug. Where are we right now in terms of comparison, in terms of alternate schedules of IV bortezomib and particularly sub-Q bortezomib, and any way to sort of guess what the relative neuropathy is of that type of strategy as opposed to carfilzomib? Yeah, I think that's a great question because, as you mentioned, the sub-Q indication for bortezomib was just approved by the FDA this week, and so I think this will start to become a bigger and bigger issue We know from the Moreau study that the incidence of significant neuropathy drops by about 50% switching IV to sub-Q with a twice-weekly regimen. We know that going from twice-weekly to once-weekly reduces the incidence of severe neuropathy by about 50% as well. And so the idea of using once-weekly sub-Q, would that really take you down to a much lower signal to make the difference in neuropathy less of a competitive issue between the two drugs? I think what you lose with once-weekly bortezomib, either as a single agent or even in combinations, is you do lose some efficacy. The drug is better when it's given twice a week. There are examples of patients progressing on once a week who respond to twice a week. And so the advantage of being able to give full dose, full schedule, without neuropathy, I think is something that carfilzomib really does bring to the table. What have you been doing in your own practice in terms of sub-Q or weekly bortezomib? So in our patients off study, almost all of them are getting subcutaneous bortezomib. So we switched a year ago after the Moreau presentation came out at ASH. In terms of once weekly versus twice weekly, it really depends on the regimen and the side effects. So for instance, patients that develop neuropathy or develop early signs of neuropathy, rather than going to one milligram per meter squared twice a week, we'll often go to 1.3 once a week. So we use that weekly dosing, not necessarily at the start, but to help in our dose modification schema for patients. Have you seen any injection site reactions with sub-Q-bortezomib? You know, we actually looked back at our data. I think we've treated over 150 patients with sub-Q-bortezomib. We've had probably about 3% that have had some reason to switch back to IV, whether it's injection site or just discomfort. They didn't like the idea of sub-Q. But in general, most of our patients, especially our maintenance bortezomib patients, really like the sub-Q because it's so much quicker. Do you rotate the site? Yes, yeah. And in fact, in the Lancet paper, there's a schema. There are eight different sites that you can go to, four on the abdomen, four in the thighs, that I think you do have to follow. Yeah, I remember seeing that diagram, but I was just curious if people actually do it. So you do that? We do that. We do that. And we find that the deltoids are not so good for injection site. And I've heard of practices using the deltoid, and then the patient says, I didn't like that. That wasn't good. And I think there's a reason why they're going to the belly and the thighs. They're just a little bit more fat there. So another area of excitement related to proteasome inhibitors at ASH was the oral agent, MLN9708. There were two presentations of that. Can you talk about what was seen there? 
Yeah, the oral agent, MLN9708, in many ways is an oral version of bortezomib. And what I think separates the 9708 from the other second-generation proteasome inhibitors is that, like bortezomib, it is a boronate in the sense that carfilzomib is an epoxy ketone. It's a structurally different molecule that may not make a difference one way or the other to most of the listeners, except that I do have patients that had anaphylaxis with bortezomib. And so in those patients, I wouldn't consider 9708 because the boron is probably what yielded the allergy, and I'm using an epoxy ketone like carfilzomib in those patients for that reason. So there is a structural difference between the molecules. The 9708 molecule is an oral proteasome inhibitor that right now is being tested in weekly and twice-weekly schedules. What's nice about 9708 is that its half-life is longer than bortezomib, so the once-a-week schedule may be able to get you the same kind of efficacy that a twice-a-week schedule may be able to get you with bortezomib, for instance. And what we've seen in the relapsed refractory trial, which was a phase one study, is that we can clearly find activity among patients. Whether it can overcome bortezomib resistance, I think is less clear, but it clearly does have activity in patients who were previously bortezomib sensitive. What I think is also quite striking is data presented by Dr. Berdeja looking at newly diagnosed patients where it was combined with Lendex. And what we have now is a fixed dose of 9708 combined with lenalidomide and low-dose dexamethasone on a 28-day cycle with weekly dosing that demonstrates 50% of patients in VGPR or better at four cycles. Really very active and very well tolerated. So sort of an RVD-like. Exactly, exactly. And in both of these studies, both the phase one as well as this other combination regimen, what was seen in terms of neuropathy? So what I can tell you is that the neuropathy signal is really quite low. I think there was maybe one patient in the phase one that had neuropathy. None of our patients in the phase one relapsed or in the newly diagnosed trial had any significant neuropathy at all. And I'll tell you again, in the relapse trial, we had a patient who'd previously had neuropathy from bortezomib, went on to 9708 when they progressed. They were bortezomib sensitive, just had neuropathy, and have been on 9708 for over a year now without any neuropathy at all. So I'm kind of still from the outside trying to figure out why carfilzomib and for that matter pomalidomide aren't available right now. I guess it's over my head. What about this agent? What are your projections in terms of when or if it might become available? Well, the phase three trials to get 9708 approved are in planning and hopefully will begin this year. And I think that it's not the kind of drug that probably is going to move forward with an accelerated approval strategy. It's probably going to be a full randomized phase three trial that's going to have to be done before we have this drug out on the market. And so I think we're looking at a few years before 9708 is really ready for prime time. So phase three, what design? I think that there are a number of designs looking at 9708, potentially plus or minus lenalidomide and dexamethasone. So 9708 Lendex versus Lendex, I think those are some of the plans that are being discussed. Why aren't these agents, I mean, I don't necessarily understand how things work in terms of approval, but when you see patients who, you know, in an advanced refractory setting are clearly deriving benefit, which, you know, I hear from lots of people in terms of carfilzomib and pomalidomide, why aren't they available? Well, I think that that is a really good question because both carfilzomib and pomalidomide, I think, have pretty significant activity. 
and they have a very different safety profile. And I think it has to do with our approval process. I mean, in order to prove accelerated approval, you have to essentially show that you work in a population that has exhausted every other potential treatment. And the FDA includes things like doxorubicin. It includes things like BCNU, which none of us use anymore because it doesn't really work. But they have approval indications in myeloma. And so I think getting the accelerated approval now is really very, very challenging. Getting back to this oral agent, 9708, sort of looking at it globally, what are you seeing as potentially the big advantage or advantages? Well, I think that what 9708 brings to the table is really two things. The first is that the neuropathy signal appears to be quite low. And that, again, you know, compared to bortezomib, I think is clearly a step forward. The second is that it's oral. And so we have the possibility of having an oral, completely oral, proteasome inhibitor imid population for newly diagnosed patients, I think that that would really be a pretty significant step forward. Let's talk a little bit about elituzumab and your presentation of the phase two study, looking at it in combination with lenalidomide and low-dose dex. Elituzumab, I think, really represents, in my mind, and I'll admit it's somewhat of a biased view because I was the PI on the study, it really represents a completely new approach for us in myeloma, and that is that we're using monoclonal antibodies. And antibodies have really permeated all of oncology fairly well. The problem in myeloma has been that even if you've got a good target, the immune function may be limiting the ability of an antibody to really be effective. You can ligate the target with an antibody all you want, but if you don't have effector NK cells or other cells to really induce ADCC, you may not have anything other than an antibody-coated cancer cell that can continue to do what it wants to do. What we did in a phase one trial combining elotuzumab with len lodose dex is really prove, I think, the idea that you can not only use an antibody that hits the target, but that by enhancing immune function, by giving lenalidomide, you may enhance the efficacy of that monoclonal antibody. And what we showed was that 92% of patients responded in our phase one trial, 82% of patients overall had a response in that study and that the median duration of response was over 16 months. And that was in our phase one study that has been accepted for publication now. What we showed in this phase two study was a larger patient population. We treated 60 patients with either 10 or 20 milligrams per kilogram of elotuzumab, and again showed an 82% response rate in aggregate, and that the median progression-free survival has not been reached with a median follow-up of over 15 months. Now, what I would do just to put this number in perspective is tell you the response rate for len lodose dex in a relapsed patient population is probably between 50 and 60%. So the 80% number that we've shown you twice now, I think is a real number. The second is that the median progression-free survival in the 009 and 010 trials that got lenalidomide and dex approved was probably right around 11 to 13 months. So the fact that both of our trials now have a median progression-free survival of over a year suggests that this concept of adding an image to an antibody, I think, not only improves response rate, but also improves progression-free survival. Let's talk a little bit about another exciting compound that's not yet available, pomalidomide, and there were several papers looking at that. Pomalidomide, to me, really represents, in my mind, one of those drugs, just as you mentioned, that 
you really wish were available and on the market because it can make such a big difference to patients. And similar to what I've said in other forums, I'll say it here as well, and that is pomalidomide is one of the drugs that I feel bad when a patient dies of myeloma and they're not exposed to pomalidomide because I think it does have very significant activity. What we know from trials, and there were a number of trials presented, Paul Richardson presented the trial comparing POM versus POM-DEX, Xavier Lelou from the IFM presented data on POM-DEX given on continuous schedule versus three out of four weeks of POM-DEX, and then there's updates from the LACI data, there's trials adding pomalidomide with cyclophosphamide or adding biaxin to pomalidomide from Ruben Nowitzki. And what I think all of these very clearly and consistently show is that patients who are resistant to lenalidomide, that one out of three of them will have a PR or better with POMDEX. And in fact, roughly half of them will have stable disease or better with pomalidomide and dexamethasone. And that, to me, represents a real move forward. How about tolerability issues with pomalidomide? Well, the most common side effects we see with pomalidomide is myelosuppression. So in many ways, it's not dissimilar from what we see with lenalidomide. The neuropathy signal has not been overwhelming like it is with thalidomide. It may be slightly more prevalent than it is with lenalidomide, but really I can tell you I don't think I saw any significant neuropathy with pomalidomide. The fatigue is an issue, although again, these are such refractory patients, it's hard to know how much is drug-related versus disease-related. But in general, myelosuppression is really the biggest issue. And moving forward, is the future of pomalidomide going to be in people with resistant disease or past lenalidomide, or is it going to be tested earlier on? Is it going to be tested in maintenance? Well, I think that pomalidomide's role in terms of getting it registered and approved is going to be in patients who are resistant to lenalidomide. I think that's pretty clear, the direction that's being moved forward in the proposed designs for phase three trials to get pomalidomide on the market. Whether it moves to an earlier patient population, I think, is less clear. Remember, POM and LEN have been around for roughly the same amount of time. The reason that LEN went forward over POM years ago was that it was thought that lenalidomide was not teratogenic. We now know that that is not correct. Pomalidomide, we always knew and thought was teratogenic, and in fact it is. So they are somewhat similar drugs in many ways, but pomalidomide is more potent than lenalidomide, and that helps you to overcome resistance. 